So we're continuing with this passage found in 1 Peter on countering Satan's strategy. And um, uh, there are Christians that don't want to think about Satan at all. And as I said last week, Peter doesn't give him much attention except in these two verses. Other, besides that, not much attention is given to Satan. But we need to be aware of his tactics, his strategy. So we need to be, uh, as, Paul, as Peter tells us here, to be aware that there is an adversary that is active in this world, and how to counter his strategy. So would you stand with me for the reading of these two verses in 1 Peter chapter 5, in verses 8 and 9. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of God's word. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a Roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who are in the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we can never thank you enough for opening our eyes to the truth of the gospel for revealing Christ to us, for taking us out of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son, for telling us the truth about yourself, the truth about us, the truth about our arch enemy. Thank you for opening our eyes to his deception. Thank you for opening our eyes to your marvelous grace. Thank you before this time we were in darkness blinded by the prince of this world. But now we are yours. We are your people. We have embraced the gospel. We love this word. We love the truth. Thank you for delivering delivering us from the lies of the enemy, that there is no hope, that there is no salvation, that there is no future that awaits us, that is glorious. All these lies that have been embraced by so many. And we were part of that number, but you delivered us and made us your people. How can we thank you enough for that? And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to reveal truth, and that truth would continue to bring freedom in every one of us, those who still don't know you this day, that you would draw them to yourself. And this we pray in the wonderful and precious name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. Be seated, beloved. Last Sunday, we um, took some time to consider our powerful enemy, Satan. And you'll remember me saying that before coming to the knowledge of the Savior, we had an enemy, but it was not Satan. Some of you were surprised by that remark, and and shared that um, surprise with me after the gathering. Paul confirms this truth, telling us that we had a different enemy before coming to Christ. In Romans chapter 5, verses 7 to 10, where we read, For one will hardly die for a righteous person, 
though perhaps for a good person, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Notice verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul is saying unambiguously that before coming to Christ, before becoming children of God, we were enemies of God. God was our enemy. Not because he chose to be our enemy, but because we chose to become his enemies. But because of his boundless and extravagant love toward us and sending his son to die on the cross, we have become his friends. That's God's doing. That's the gift of grace. Isn't that wonderful? In his infinite grace, God did not leave us as his enemies. He did the unthinkable and gave us new life. As Peter reminds us, in chapter 1, we already dealt with this verse, but let's reread it. Chapter 1 from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Isn't that amazing? He did this. It was his plan. He carried it out perfectly so that his people could be with him throughout eternity. What a wonderful God. So from being his enemies, we've become God's beloved friends. That's what Jesus told his disciples. I call you friends. Now we sing that song, I'm a friend of God, I'm a friend of God. But if, if we're not believers, we're not friends of God. We are enemies. We are on the other side. But once we become children of God, once we are regenerated, then we become his friends. We are co-heirs with Christ. What indescribable mercy. Now God wasn't obligated to do this. And here we see how mercy triumphs over justice. From the moment we became God's friends, the moment we became children of God, we received so many gifts, so many blessings. Chapter 2, chapter 1 rather, of Ephesians speaks about the blessings that are ours in Christ. But along with the blessings, we received a new enemy, a new enemy, Satan. And we looked at his modest operandi, which is primarily deception, deception. In fact, his lies are the seedlings for every other sin. So when, for example, um, he sows a lie in Eve's mind, she sins and along with Adam, and they disobey. His lies are the seedlings for every sin. Too many Christians are afraid of being spooked 
by spirits. We mustn't be afraid of being spooked by spirits. I was reading about a haunted house somewhere in California and how difficult it was for the seller to sell this house in a seller's market. He kept lowering the price of the house and he had no interested party because as soon as they would show interest and discover that the house was haunted, they would lose interest. There's nothing, um, nothing more uh, confusing than all that is going about regarding Satan's work in a distracting way. That's all decoy. Haunted house, ghouls, spirits, and all the rest of it. It's all stuff of Harry Potter. It's not what the Bible says Satan is involved in. It's all distraction. It's a smokescreen. So we get caught up in all that stuff. That's not what he's involved in. The reason why the enemy does stuff like this is simply to distract us. During my stay in Sicily, I witnessed a lot of weird stuff, and stuff that I'm not going to go into. At times, I've spoken about it to some individuals, but, you know, they're, they're there all caught up with, tell me more, tell me more. And that's not really what we're here for, to share the antics of Satan, right? And so I don't want to share them, not to alarm those who are susceptible, and not to sensationalize demonic activity. But I remember being unsettled by the whole thing. In Sicily, in particular, I saw stuff that I'd never seen before. And so I spoke to one experienced pastor. I, I met up with him. I said, what in the world is going on? What is this stuff? You know? And he looked at me and goes, so what? <laughs> Why are you so concerned? Well, I said, look, I'm praying, and then stuff happens in somebody's house. I don't know what's going on. What is all this stuff about Fatu Kiris? And, and I didn't know what was really happening. It was all new to me. He said, it's all a decoy. Smokescreen. The enemy wants you to be scared. And those who are not scared are entertained and they're caught up with the power of being a fatukere, someone who can put a spell on someone else. It's all a decoy. It's deception. What is harder to, dis- to discern are his lies. His lies. That's hard to discern. That's what we need to uncover, my, br- my friend. This was an experienced pastor who had met many people who were demon-possessed. And that's what he told me. His lies are the most important thing. Why are people in general spooked by spirits? Because Satan either keeps them entertained or afraid. That's why you have Halloween. Well, how did Halloween come to be? Because people thought that these spirits needed to be appeased. And so they would put food outside of their houses to appease these spirits on the eve of November 1st, which is Halloween. Now, if you are an unbeliever, you don't need to fear spirits. You don't need to fear uh, demonic activity. What you need to fear is God. You're going to meet him one day as your judge. If you refuse the gospel, if you reject the gospel, that will be a fearful moment to stand before a holy God who you will give account to for rejecting the most precious truth the truth that sets you free. That's who you need to fear. Not spirits, not chandeliers moving and tables moving and haunted houses. We're not, we're not into magic. Christianity is fought on a different level. And people that are into that kind of stuff are not reading the Bible. They're reading Harry Potter. 
We don't read Harry Potter. We're not interested in that kind of stuff. It's rubbish. Last week we saw that our new adversary attacks incessantly believers, night and day. He prowls around, sowing his deception, carefully crafted lies. As slander-in-chief, his aim is to destroy our trust in God, our joy, our holiness, our peace. It's to render us barren, miserable, weak, and joyless Christians. And we left off considering the one absolute virtue necessary to resist Satan. And it's found in verse 6 of the same chapter. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Humility. That is the, that's required. Without it, we will not be able to withstand the enemy. There is no victory against such a formidable foe unless we humble ourselves before God. Think about it. Why did Peter fail? Why did David fail? He failed because of pride. Spiritual failure always is generated by pride. Pride is the key that Satan seeks to get into our minds, into our lives, and to sow his lies. We do not win this enemy by screaming at him. I've met Christians that scream at Satan all the time. By casting him out of our lives. I rebuke you, I rebuke you. And they turn around constantly rebuking Satan. Or by repeating the words, blood of Jesus, blood of Jesus. Cover me, blood of Jesus, cover me. That's superstitious. Totally superstitious. Doesn't mean, I don't know why we say those things. I just don't understand it. As if that kind of mantra will scare him. Or picking up a cross. The Catholic Church believes actually if you pick up a cross or throw holy water, Satan's going to be terrified. Yeah, sure. I can imagine Paul going around with a cross. There's, that's just hocus pocus. It's all hocus pocus. It's all pure superstition. If you believe in any of these practices, then you're reading a lot of Harry Potter. Very little Bible. Christianity and magic are totally incompatible. We are in the battle, the true battle. The battle against deception. That's the battle, church. The Catholic Church believes, for example, that you can actually exercise spirits from individual with uh, saying certain prayers and the cross and holy water and all that kind of stuff. And that has made its way into movies. Endless movies have been produced based on this premise. Listen carefully. No movie will ever uncover the true strategy of Satan because Hollywood is in the hands of the evil one. This world, as John tells us in his first letter, is in the lap of the evil one. Satan keeps the unbeliever in fear with his antics and keeps many misguided believers equally afraid as they scream, blood of Jesus, or I cast you out, or whatever else. In the meanwhile, Satan does his best work with lies, deception, using any means possible to sow deception. The enemy doesn't go about trying to deceive non-Christians. Why? Why does he deceive non-Christians? They are dead in their sins. They are sons of disobedience, children of wrath. There's no need to deceive them. They are in bondage. The unbeliever is blind to the truth of the gospel. 
The enemy is instead is focused on casting his web of carefully crafted lies around the mind of the church. And today, unfortunately, I say this with a lot of sadness, the evangelical church has embraced so many lies. So many lies. I want you to pay attention to these words written by Paul. They reveal how in the last days, Satan will multiply his efforts of mass deception. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, we read, But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away. Now, to fall away, it means that they were, they were drawn to the gospel. They were drawn to Christianity, drawn to Judeo-Christian values. They were there, appreciating, respecting it. Some will fall away from the faith, paying how? Paying attention to deceitful spirits. Notice the spirits are deceitful, deception, and teachings of demons. Teachings of demons. Consider carefully what I'm about to say. We live at a time when it's perfectly okay for a guy and a girl to live together without getting married. While at the same time, there's a powerful push for churches to embrace gay marriage. Go figure. Does it make any sense? Or if someone shares with me that he's struggling with homosexual desires and wants spiritual help to overcome them, I need to be careful in what I say because my words can incriminate me. But if someone comes to me and says, I want to come out, out of the closet and tell the world that I'm gay and I need your help in making that happen. I want to be openly known as gay. I, as a pastor at that point, need to celebrate that. I need to congratulate him on that. Doctrine of demons. Satan is not only interested in heavy topics like the ones I just mentioned. There are a lot more. We, do, we deal with them every single week. But other issues regarding family, friendships, parenting, our walk with God, the Bible, church attendance, money, the use of, the use of money, end-of-life care, abortion, the list is lengthy. It's lengthy. It's endless. We do this every single week. Every time you open your Bible, you're opening the Bible to the book of truth that uncovers Satan's lies. And what are we to do with these lies? Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 to 6, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. So the crusaders had it wrong. They thought they were going into the Middle East and, and in the name of the church, defeat the enemy. That's not what they were supposed to be doing, but they did because they misread scriptures. They're not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. It's all metaphorical language that Paul is using here. We are destroying what? Arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. 
So what are we called to to do with these lies? We're called to destroy them. We are called to destroy these lies, these mental fortresses that we have inside of us, that that we erect because we we imbue one lie, then another lie, another lie, and then we have little fortresses, and our belief system comes into play. And that belief system is now in place, and Sunday after Sunday, and every time you open your scriptures and you allow the Holy Spirit to come in, those lies have to be exposed in our lives. If lies aren't being exposed, we are easy prey for his lies. So how do we fight them? With weapons, Paul says. Not of the flesh, but divinely powerful weapons. What are these weapons? Truth. The word, the gospel, these are the weapons. When you read Ephesians chapter 6, it's not that we are to be taking that metaphor, and some people do this, I don't understand what that means. Lord, I'm taking the sword of the Spirit now. Lord, I'm taking the breastplate and placing the light. Lord, I'm taking the What does that mean? That means nothing. We're not into mysticism. It's truth, the word, the gospel. We need sound doctrine, prayer based on that word, fellowship. These are the weapons we have that God has given us to take down these powerful fortresses. That's why it's so important to be in the church. I mean in, not loosely connected to the church. In the church, together, sharpening each other. Fellowship is so vital. Reading his word, praying together. What you listen to on YouTube, always say, is this according to God's word? Don't just laugh at it. Oh, look how cute. Is what is being said here, is this according to God's word? Everything. This is how we bring every thought captive Otherwise, those thoughts come into our minds and then slowly they make their ways and they uh, are seedlings of lies that come in and that those seedlings of lies eventually germinate into disobedience. So Peter mentions three postures that are necessary to resist Satan and to uncover his lies. These are very indispensable postures that we need. We've already spoken about humility. That's where it all starts. But look at the three postures that he mentions here. From verse 8, we see, first, be of sober spirit. We already spoke about this when we dealt with um, sobriety of spirit, but I'm just going to elaborate a little more today. What does Peter mean when he writes, be sober in spirit? We discover this expression three times in this letter. In 113, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then again in 4.7, the end of all things is near. So those of you who are concerned that we're living close to the end times, what are you to do? Simple. Be of sound judgment, sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Sobriety is essential. It is the essential posture of a healthy Christian. Sobriety. 
sobriety in spirit helps us to set our hope in Christ's return so we don't get caught up with the things of this world and helps us to cultivate a prayer life. Notice that. Those are the two things it does in verses 13 and 4-7. So obviously it's an important posture to have. So we all know what sobriety is in physical sobriety, right? It means you've seen the sign, uh, drive sober, right? That's a very common sign. Peter isn't referring, though, to uh, sobriety in this sense. He hasn't, doesn't have alcohol in mind when he's speaking about this. He's speaking of another kind of intoxication. He's talking about the intoxication of the spirit, the intoxication of the spirit. Peter's addressing, keeping this in mind, or always keep in mind his audience, suffering Christians. Suffering Christians. Imagine you go to a suffering Christian and you say, brother, sober in spirit. That's how you win. You wouldn't say that. No one would say that. You say, oh, brother, I understand. My goodness, you're going through such a hard time. Let me just stay with you and comfort you and all that. Peter says, no, no, no. You're a soldier. You're a soldier. Endure like a soldier, as Paul writes to Timothy. Sobriety in spirit. If we're sober in spirit, we will be able to discern Satan's lies. But a Christian who is not sober in spirit will have a very hard time. He'll get distracted. And we'll definitely have a hard time resisting him, right? You can't resist Satan if you're not spotting his lies. You're just going to let those lies come into your life. So how can a Christian be intoxicated? Right? How do you get intoxicated in spirit? Interesting question, isn't it? Worldliness. There's a word we don't hear much of. Worldliness. A worldly mind can easily prevent us from meditating on God's word, from praying, from fellowshipping with saints, from delighting in God, from worshiping Him in spirit and in truth on a daily basis. Worldliness. And there is no church that is more worldly than the church of the 21st century. You read the Puritans, which I enjoy reading very much, and those men were on another level. And their messages were so deep and so well-crafted. They spoke to farmers, men who had very little schooling, who were able to follow their messages. I said, what kind of people were these? You would think they would speak like this to university graduates and all. Farmers who barely knew how to write. And they would absorb the word that was given. Meat. Not this pablum stuff. Meat. They were serious students of the word. And that's what we need to become. Otherwise, worldliness comes, creeps in. The culture in which we live is what Scripture often calls the world. John reminds us not to love the world because it can be intoxicating. It can easily blind us to our spiritual surroundings. Christian can lose his sobriety of spirit. So let me show you by a parable uh, what this means even further, throw more light on this. I believe that the parable of the sower can throw a lot of light on this. Jesus speaks about the seed that is being sowed by the sower in different kinds of soil, and the soil represents the heart of man. Of the four soils he mentions, three of them are unfruitful. We know that. We know that. The hard soil, the rocky soil, the thorny soil. 
But notice Jesus' warning when he explains how the thorny soil fails to bring fruit after receiving God's word. Luke 8, 14, And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked by worries, by riches, and pleasures of life, or of this life, rather, and they bring no fruit to maturity. So I want to draw your attention to those four words, pleasures of this life. What is he speaking about? He's not speaking about illegitimate pleasures. It's not illegitimate stuff he's speaking about here. Remember the days of Noah? They're eating, they're drinking, they're getting married. Legitimate pleasures. Legitimate pleasures. To be sober in spirit is to be careful that you're not intoxicated with the pleasures of life. The legitimate pleasures, not the illegitimate stuff. That easily cloud your thinking. One of the most common ways that this happen, is happening today, I think it's with our gadgets. Our gadgets. Uh, I recently heard that there is a new um, treatment for those who are intoxicated or, shall we say, addicted to the internet. And that is a big problem. Right? So, our gadgets take up a lot of our time, a lot of our time that should, could, be, could go into reading God's word, to calling someone, encouraging someone, to praying, to meditating, to reading a good book that will help us in our Christian walk. What do we do instead? We spend so much time on our gadgets. That's intoxication. We're not being intoxicated with alcohol. We're not being intoxicated with wine. We're being intoxicated with something that is keeping us from being sober in spirit. This is how the enemy works. So he tells us, he tells his audience then, and God's word tells us today, the only way to keep captive every thought to the obedience of Christ is with this right posture of sobriety in spirit. In Ephesians 4.27, we find these words, do not give the devil an opportunity. So how do we give the devil an opportunity? By being careless with the legitimate pleasures of this life. God has given us many pleasures. This world is full of them. You have a whole bunch of good things, but these good things can become, in and of themselves, so intoxicating that our soul, instead of feeding off of God's word, becomes poorer and poorer because we lack sobriety and spirit. Don't give the enemy room to sow his lies into your life. Be sober in spirit. Ask God for grace. Ask, if you don't understand what that means, ask him for wisdom. Say, Lord, am I sober in spirit? Simply ask him. And if you're not, then he will give you the grace to be sober in spirit. Look at someone who's suffering a lot. And you will find that he's sober in spirit. A suffering Christian, a suffering individual is more sober. He's not given to pleasures. He's considering the brevity of life. He's considering how life is futile, how you work and work, and at the end you have nothing. And that person who is suffering has made his inventory, and he's realizing that there is very little time left. My wife and I this morning hugged each other and said, wow how time has passed us by. That brings in sobriety. That's what we need is sobriety 
in spirit. Second thing we need is alertness. Verse 8 goes on to say, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Alertness goes hand in hand with sobriety of spirit. Just as it is impossible to be in control of your faculties when you are drunk, inebriated, so it is impossible to be watchful or alert if sobriety of of spirit is lacking. Sobriety of spirit has to do with temperance. Remember when Paul met King Agrippa and he said, he spoke to him of self-control. Why? A king had access to so many things. Self-control, king. Self-control. And that's what today's generation needs to hear. Self-control. Temperance. Sobriety of spirit. So, sobriety of spirit has to do with temperance, whereas alertness is more associated with prayer. The disciples' experience in the garden explains this a little more, throws more light on this. You'll remember after three years of ministry, the father is pleased with the son, and he's in the final stretch. He's in the garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying intensely. His sweat is like drops of blood coming from his brow. He is earnest in prayer. Take this cup away from me. And while he's earnest, his disciples are a little further off. And he walks up to them, and this is what Jesus says. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to them, to Peter rather, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? You just couldn't keep watch? Notice, notice, he didn't say, could you not keep prayer? He didn't say, I don't want you to, they didn't understand the power of prayer yet. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. But they could have kept watch. They could have stayed awake. You couldn't keep watch. Keep watching and praying. Notice, he brings them, these two together. So that you do not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, you could be all desirous to serve the Lord, but you're not watching. If you're not alert, you're going to stumble. You're going to fall. His lies will overcome you. Being alert. Watching and praying. Jesus is the epitome of someone who is sober in spirit and alert. Sober in spirit. Jesus never caught, was caught up with the, the, anything of this world. Nothing. He, was, he had set his face like a flint, it says, towards Jerusalem. In other words, he was unwaveringly determined to do what he had come to do. I am going to die. I am going to that cross. Nothing, no one is going to get, get me off my path. He was sober in spirit. He was focused. He was a soldier. That's our example of sobriety in spirit and alertness. Alertness. Be like this, we need God's grace. We can't be it on our own. There's no way. On our own, we're going to be caught up with this world. We're going to be weak. We're going to be fumbling. His lies will, the enemy's lies will come, and we'll just give in to them and not pay attention to the truth of God's word. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, watch with me. The disciples had no clue what was going on. Nothing at all. They were hoping that Jesus was going to oust the Romans, that he was going to usher in this glorious new reign into Israel, that he would go and occupy the throne of David. They would have their own respective roles in the kingdom. That's what they were hoping for. They had their own agenda. And Jesus says, watch, watch, and pray. Just like we have our agendas at times. We have our own lives to carry forth. And we're not, we're not paying attention to these lies of the enemy. We're not concerned about being sober in spirit or being alert in prayer. We're not. We're, 
we're, okay, the Lord saved us, and here we are, we're okay. No, we're not. Because if we're not sober in spirit, and if we're not alert in prayer, we are going to fall for Satan's lies. And we'll become weak. We'll fall. This kind of alertness is a posture that trained Christians cultivate. Because they know from experience how crafty the enemy is. How crafty he is with his lies. When a Christian stops praying, all right, when a Christian stops praying, his prayers, when he does pray, are, are remarkably weak. Remarkably weak. Because he's gotten caught up with the things of this world. This is what Paul said of Demas, one of his fellow workers, a soldier that Paul had trained in the ministry. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. What happened to Demas? What happened to him? He lost his sobriety of spirit. He lost his alertness. He fell for Satan's lies. The ministry is so hard. Being a Christian is so difficult. Oh my goodness, I can't do this anymore. And you just stumble and fall. That's how the enemy gets people who are not sober in spirit and not alert. While others are sleeping, the alert believer is awake. While others are careless, the alert believer is on his guard. Have you ever seen a, a flock of geese when they land in their different sanctuaries as they travel? They're remarkable birds. You know, in Italy, the geese is known as a, a stupid bird, but not Canadian geese. They're not stupid by any stretch of the imagination. They're remarkably smart. And when they land in a sanctuary and they're all feeding and resting, there's always the geese that has its neck upright. They're not bowed down like everyone else. There's a geese on guard, alert to any sign of danger so he can send the signal and they all take off. That's what the Christian needs to develop. That's what Peter's saying here. Don't just be careless. Don't just be tired. Don't let the world envelop you. Be alert. Be like the guard who's on the watchtower. While everyone is having a, his party and sleeping or whatever else they're doing, the guard is alert. He's watching from the tower to see any signs of the enemy. That's what we need to develop as Christians. Don't just be content that I'm saved and the Lord is good. I'm a child of God and you just go marry on as if this is a this is fantasy world. It isn't. We are in a battle, and the deception is very real. Whatever keeps you from being alert, brother, sister, deal with it. Whatever prevents you from reading God's word carefully, diligently, but whatever keeps you from praying, whatever keeps you from, keep, from, from fellowshipping with believers, deal with it. Be alert. Be alert. Steadfastness, the third one. So resist them, verse 9. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who are in the world. The third and final posture that Peter highlights is steadfastness. Steadfastness has the idea of endurance, especially when you want to give up. The Christian and the early church had every reason to give up. It was so difficult that's why Peter says the experiences of suffering that you are going through are being experienced by the rest of the Christians in the world. 
they suffered for their faith. And Peter was encouraging them to stay firm in their faith. I think of Paul's words as he, at the end of his life, while he was in the Maritime prison. There in the Maritime prison, he was waiting for his sentence of death, his execution. And he writes these words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. And you don't see fear in Paul. You don't see, he's not uh, unsettled by the fact that he's going to die any moment. None of that. Look at, look at it. Listen to his words. Look at his demeanor as it oozes out of these verses. 7 and 8, chapter 4. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you see, do you see, any, do you see any defeat in Paul? Do you see any fear in Paul? Do you see any discouragement in Paul? None whatsoever. Why? Because Paul had these postures developed in his life through the sufferings that he went through. He had these significant postures developed in his life, and this one brought him to being steadfast. Steadfast all the way. Paul could have given up on many occasions. He had every reason to. You just read chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, and you see the list of persecution and trials that this man went through, and you just, by reading it, say, wow, this is overwhelming. How, why didn't Paul give up? Obviously, it was because of God's grace. God sustained him. There were moments he felt alone, he felt afraid, but he overcame those moments, and he was steadfast. And then as he reaches the end, he's able to write something like this, just before he is executed. Paul endured and continued to run the race by staying firm in his faith. Firm in the faith means firm in what he had learned, he had discovered, he had, been, had received as a revelation of the gospel. He had learned the truth, he had discovered this truth, and he stayed firm in that truth. When you feel like giving up, remember Christ's suffering for your salvation. And you'll be encouraged to be steadfast. Recall the ultimate price that Christ paid for your salvation. And you too will be willing to pay the price. Remember the weight of the cross that Jesus carried so that you too will be encouraged to pick up your cross and walk the path of righteousness. Stand firm in the truth of the gospel. And in this way, you will resist the enemy of your soul. Peter knew their sufferings. He was suffering. The Christians were suffering, some far more than others. And that is why he says, knowing this, that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who are in the world. The Christians of his day were suffering. I don't think we are suffering in the Western world. Some would say, yes, we have hardships, we have trials, we may have temptations to deal with, we have battles. We have definitely a, 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 a world of deception that comes against us. But the suffering that is going on today in many parts of the world against the church, we know very little about it. These words should be more of a warning to us. If we are not suffering to that level, 
It means that the suffering is just around the corner. It means that the enemy is preparing something against the church that will cause us to fail. He brings in lies so that at the end, the church will capitulate. This is where we need to stand strong. This is where we need to be Christians who are steadfast, going along the very lines of the faith that we've been given. The more you fortify your mind with the word of God, and the more you will be steadfast, the more you'll be able to resist the enemy. Sobriety of spirit, alertness, steadfastness. If we are sober in spirit, we will not fall for the intoxication of this world. If we are alert, we will be able to pray and not be careless in our prayer life. And if we are steadfast, we'll be firm in our faith and not give up and throw in the towel just because there's a discouragement, because there's a trial, there's a sickness, and there's, a, there's some kind of adversity, some kind of opposition in our lives. We will be steadfast, we'll pursue and forge ahead. Let's close with a verse found in James. James adds a new dimension that up to now we have not seen in any of the passages, not mentioned by Peter, and not uh, mentioned in any of the passages we just read. James 4, 7 gives a summary of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at, listen to these words. Submit, therefore, to God. Well, that's what? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Right? So when you read, submit, therefore, to God, you're humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. You're accepting your lot in life. You're not complaining about the situation that you're in. Submit yourself under the hand of God. You're joyful in your situation. You're not, you're not miserable in your situation. You remember that Christ has died for you and that you are rich beyond measure. Submit, therefore, to God. Then, but resist the devil. Well, Peter just said that. Peter tells us, tells us to resist the devil. But then he adds something, James, that Peter does not say. And he will flee from you. Now, we've not read that in Peter or anyone else. Nowhere else we read that, except here. He will flee from you. Think about it. What makes the enemy flee from you? This powerful foe, this ancient dragon, this serpent of old, this slander-in-chief, what makes him flee from you? Because you are powerful, because you're strong. We're no match for him. He flees from you. Because you are a child of God. Little old you, not some mantra, blood of Jesus, blood of Jesus. Not because you're rebuking him. Not because you have holy water or a cross in your hand or hanging around your neck. None of that makes him flee. None of that. You are making him flee by your submission to God. And as you resist him with these postures that we just mentioned, because without those postures, without them, there is no way. Sobriety, alertness, steadfastness. As you assume those postures, he flees because you are uncovering his lies. That's how he flees. Every time you take one of his lies and you grind it with the word of God, all right, using that metaphor, that imagery, you grind it with the word of God, he flees. That's how he flees. Little you can defeat this powerful foe. 
That's how God has blessed you. That's how powerful you are in Christ. Outside of Christ, you have no power. Holy water, crosses, mantras, all that, nothing works. But in Christ, you have nothing to fear, nothing whatsoever. Every day, we make Satan flee through a life of obedience and submission to his word, God's word. Wonderful, wonderful truth. What a privilege to be a child of God. What an honor. Father, we thank you. We can't thank you enough. The enemy wants us to be afraid of him, but we fear you, Lord. And as your word reminds us, to make this prayer our prayer, unite our hearts to fear your name. So that in reality, when the enemy comes with his lies, we can spot the lie and resist him and see him flee. We don't want to give any room to the enemy. We don't want to succumb to his lies. We think of Jesus in the wilderness, how indeed, Lord, he was sober in spirit, alert and steadfast. And how he just dismantled every one of Satan's lies with the word of God. Oh, help us to love this book. Help us to stay much time in reading it. Deliver us from being just nibblers of the word. Deliver us from being careless in prayer. Deliver us from being intoxicated with this world. Deliver us, Lord. We don't want to be superficial Christians, which gives room to self-deception. Deliver us. Thank you for reminding us of this. Thank you for reminding us of those who are yours, are yours forever, but that does not mean we are to be careless. You saved us monergistically, but you sanctify us synergistically. Our participation is so crucial. And because it's so crucial, we, like Augustine, pray, command what you will and grant what you command. And this we ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.